Romans 9, verses 1 to 5, will be our text this morning. The last two or three months, I don't have to tell you, have been heavy. Perhaps some of the heaviest you have experienced in your lifetime. Many of us have been largely cut off from friends and family for weeks and weeks at a time. We have faced massive uncertainty on a weekly and even a daily basis, not knowing what would come next or what would be expected of us next or what we would be allowed or not allowed to do next. Many of us have had to make major adjustments to our routines and our jobs. Some have lost their jobs or been furloughed and had to live in limbo, not knowing if they will have a job tomorrow or next week or next month. Many are still living in that limbo and many are still unable to be with friends and family on any kind of regular basis. Some of those things, of course, have improved recently, at least for some of us. But we still don't know how long this is going to last. And uh, as a result, uh, for some of us, maybe even for most of us, Over the last few months, you have experienced unusually deep sorrow, persistent anxiety, maybe even some level of depression. And for that reason, I'm glad that by God's design, we were in Romans 8 for so many weeks, which is so full of hope and confidence and encouragement and good news, because we needed that. I needed that. But as we turn to Romans 9 this morning, we are immediately greeted with great sorrow on Paul's part. And we need to hear this too. See, we are prone to take one part of the Bible and pit it against another part of the Bible and cancel out that other part. And we do this in several areas, but one of the ways that we are prone to do this, both to ourselves and to others, is to take a passage like Philippians 4.4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we take that passage, which is good and true and helpful and encouraging and a, a, a biblical exhortation, and then we say, because of that text, you're not allowed to be sorrowful. You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be depressed. You shouldn't experience any kind of long-term grief. But the Bible does not hit those two things against each other. When the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always, it doesn't mean you always have to feel happy or like everything is good or that you always have to have a smile on your face. Because We also see passages like 2 Corinthians 1.8 which says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. It's written by the same apostle. Written by the same man. Rejoice in the Lord always. I've despaired of life itself. What do we do with passages like that? I mean, if we were with Paul when he said that, would we have said to him, don't despair, Paul. Put a smile on your face. Rejoice in the Lord always. I don't think so. The Bible is clear that both of those 
responses to life are biblical and legitimate. We have an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's a lament. It's an expression of grief and deepest sorrow over the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. The Psalms are full of lament and sorrow and grief. And hot on the heels of the highest height that Paul reaches in any of his letters in terms of encouragement and confidence and joy and high expectation, he plunges us into what he calls his unceasing anguish and great sorrow. So even before we dig into the details of Romans chapter 9, it's important for us simply to notice that these two things, great confidence and joy and deep and lasting sorrow, exist side by side. They are both legitimate. They are both Biblical, and they can both exist in the heart and life of the same person at the same time. Paul said, even in Romans 8, that we are groaning as we wait for Christ's return and our resurrection. And groaning is not an expression of joy. It's an expression of longing, of wanting something to be different than it is. So keeping Romans 8 and 9 together help us see that God um, says it's okay for us to experience both extremes of these emotions, even at the same time. So let me read for us these verses, and then we'll dig into them. Romans 9, verses 1 to 5, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what is this great sorrow that Paul expresses here in Romans chapter 9? Well, he appears at first to fear that we won't even believe him when he tells us about this great sorrow that he feels because in verse 1 he says I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He says I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's piling up words to say in every way that he can. I assure you, I'm not saying this just because I think you want to hear it. I'm not I'm not lying. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. This is genuinely how I feel, what is going on in my heart, what is going on in my life. 
that I experience this unceasing anguish. And he tells us later that this is uh, sorrow and anguish over the Jews who don't believe, over his kinsmen who have rejected the Messiah. That's why later in chapter 10 he'll say, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's longing for the salvation of the Jews. Why would somebody not believe Paul when he said that? Why does he have to pile up these words, basically sort of taking an oath, saying, I assure you, I guarantee you, I promise you, this is how I feel about my people. Well, there are lots of details from Paul's life that we could point to, but the the big picture is Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's telling the Gentiles that they don't have to keep the law. They don't have to become Jews to become Christians, to become uh, people who belong to the Messiah, Jesus. All they have to do is turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, and they receive all the promises and blessings of God. And so many of the Jewish people uh, saw Paul as an enemy, perhaps a traitor to their people, to their law, to the temple. Uh, We all remember that Paul was uh, sent to uh, Rome to face trial before Caesar, but we often forget that that all started when he was arrested in uh, in Jerusalem as people stirred up a mob because they thought that Paul had defiled the temple. Even when he came to Jerusalem, uh, the apostles sort of sat Paul down and said, look, there are some people here who have some misunderstandings about what you've been teaching and saying, and you need to be really careful while you're here. So Paul knows that there are some people that think he has turned his back on the Jewish people, that he does not care about them, but he's insisting here that that is not the case. In fact, he will even tell us in Romans chapter 11 that part of what drives his ministry to the Gentiles is he's hoping that as more and more Gentiles get saved, the Jews will get jealous as they see the Gentiles inheriting the blessings promised to them, and so they'll turn to the Messiah. I mean, in everything he's doing, he's hoping that the Jews will turn to Christ. But at this point, most of them have not. Some of them have, of course. Paul himself is a Jew. The other apostles are Jews. There was a church in Jerusalem, but... Many of those who had believed were not Jews, and many of the Jews had not believed. And so that's why he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is not just a a fleeting emotion. Every once in a while, Paul thinks of the Jews and has sort of a stab of pain. Oh, you know, man, I wish they believed. But most of the time, he's not worried about it. No, Paul is saying, this is something that weighs on me all the time. It doesn't go away. Every city he went to, if there was a synagogue, that's where he started. That's where he preached first, taking the gospel first to the Jews. In the beginning of this letter, writing to the church at Rome, he reminds the believers there that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was constantly aware of the fact that this good news belonged to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles, and yet almost everywhere he went, though he preached to the Jews first, the Jews ran him out, ran him off, rejected him. Some would believe, most would say, get out of here, you're not welcome back in our synagogue, maybe you're not even welcome in our town. 
And so this was a persistent reality for Paul, that he was grieved over the Jews who had not believed. Which means, if you live with a constant sorrow over somebody that you long to be saved, maybe it's somebody in your family, maybe it's somebody you work with, maybe it's a lifelong friend, and you are persistently burdened, you carry a a weight around with you because you just long for them to be saved. You're in good company. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be burdened like that. Paul certainly was. And we see the depth of Paul's concern for his people in verse 3 in what has to be one of the most stunning statements by anybody in the Bible. In verse 3 he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, if I could be condemned in their place, if me being cut off from Christ forever would mean that the Jews would be saved, I would do it. If I could take their place, if I could suffer instead, if I could be cut off so that they would believe, I'd do it. This from the man who says in Philippians chapter 3, I have given up every good thing I have ever laid claim to so that I could have Christ. That's all I care about. That's all I need is being found in Christ, in sharing in His resurrection. That's all my life is about. But Paul says, I would give up even that if my people would be saved. If my people would turn to the Messiah. And he's not the only one who felt that way. The main reason why I read Exodus 32 for us earlier is because Moses responded in a similar way to the sin of Israel back in the Old Testament. There are several things going on here. One, the, um, the Jews rejecting the Messiah here in the New Testament. In one sense, doesn't take us by surprise because we see how they rejected the Lord in the Old Testament too. I mean, he just delivered them from slavery. He just spoke to them on the mountain. And what do they do? They quickly turn away and they worship another God. They make for themselves an idol. God calls them a stiff-necked people. And the New Testament says all over the place that Israel's rejection of the Messiah was not a surprise. It was not a surprise. It was something... uh, Foreseen even in the Old Testament. But we also see Moses respond to Israel's sin and rejection of the Lord in a similar way to how Paul responds here in Romans chapter 9. At the end of Exodus 32, I don't know if you caught it, but Moses was angry about their sin. right? But he also, it says the next day, he went to the people and he said, I'm going to go up to the Lord and I'm going to see if I can make atonement for your sin." Now, how is he going to do that? How how is Moses going to atone for his sin, their sin? He goes before the Lord on the mountain and he says, if you will forgive their sin, and then it's sort of cut off. And then he says, but if not, 
please blot me out of your book that you have written. What I think Moses is saying there is, if you will forgive them, good. That'd be good. Please do. But if you're not going to forgive them as things stand, then I offer myself in their place. Blot me out of your book. Instead of blotting them out, blot me out and forgive them. He's offering himself as the atonement. God says, no, that's not how it's going to work. But in Moses' offer and in his desire, he points us forward to the Messiah, to Jesus, who came and did exactly what Moses wanted to do, exactly what Paul offers to do, though he knows that he can't. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, came and was cut off for us so that we would not have to be. He was cursed, bearing the curse for our sin, so that we would not have to bear it. This is how Galatians 3.13 says it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So when we think about Paul's willingness to be cut off for the sake of the Jews, when we think about Moses offering himself as an atonement for the sins of his people, and we consider the the weight of that. Would would you be willing to do that for somebody? Would I be willing to do that for somebody? As you consider the weight of that, it helps us to uh, appreciate even more fully and more deeply what it is that Christ did for us. To be willing to take our place on the cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he endured that caused him to say those words, we should have endured. But he said, like Moses and like Paul, I'll do that so they don't have to. And he unlike Moses and Paul, was able. It wouldn't have done the Israelites any good for Moses to die for them. He couldn't die for their sin. He had his own sin. Same with Paul. Paul couldn't be cut off for the Jews. I mean, he can wish he could do something, but his death wouldn't save the Jews. Wouldn't save anybody. Wouldn't even save himself. But Jesus' death saves all who trust in him. All who turned to him. That's why he was cut off for us. And that's why he sent Paul and others to say, if you will trust in the Messiah, if you will trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be reconciled to God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Now, what makes this so poignant for Paul? What, why is he so concerned about the Jews? Part of it is they're his own kinsmen, right? He says there at the end of verse 3, they are my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We all feel a certain concern for those we are uh, related to, those we share the same country with, the same, we share the same heritage and culture with. But it wasn't just that. It was also the fact 
that if anyone should have believed in the Messiah and experienced the blessings that come with believing in the Messiah, it should have been the Jews. That's what verses 4 and 5 are about. Paul, Paul sort of started on this theme way back in uh, Romans chapter 3 when he said, what advantage is there for the Jew? And he said, well, much in every way. Not No advantage that saves them, but they were privileged with receiving the oracles of God, the words of God. And then he sort of went another direction and expounded the gospel for chapters and chapters and chapters. And now he's back here in chapter 9 saying, okay... <clears throat> This is why it's such a big deal that the Jews have not believed. They are the Israelites, right? That comes from uh, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and they are his children. They are his offspring. They are supposed to be the heirs of the promises. And he says, to them belong the adoption. What does he mean by that? Was Israel adopted? Yeah, they were. They were the nation They were the people that God chose to be his special possession. And in Exodus chapter 4, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and God is sending Moses to go before Pharaoh, he says to Moses, he says, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And God says to the Uh, the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 14.1. He says to them, you are the sons of the Lord your God. So God had adopted the nation of Israel. They were made his special people. So theirs is the adoption and the glory, which probably refers to the glorious presence of God that appeared to them in the wilderness, led them through in the pillar of cloud and fire by day and by night. The the glory of the Lord that came and filled the tabernacle when it was completed and later filled the temple when Solomon built the temple, the glorious presence of God that dwelt with the people of God all throughout much of the Old Testament. He says that was theirs. The covenants, the covenant God made with Abraham saying, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply your offspring, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. The covenant God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses, when he said, if you will obey my commandments, you will be my treasured possession, you will be a a holy people. The covenant God made with David, Israel's king, when he said, I will sit one of your sons upon your throne, and I will establish his kingdom forever. All of those covenants, all of those promises belonged to the Jews. The giving of the law. Did any other nation hear their God speak from a mountain and say, here's what I want you to do and not to do? That was a special privilege of Israel. The worship. All the other nations were sort of groping, trying to find a way to worship the gods that they had conceived of and made up. Only Israel had heard from the one true and living God, this is how you shall worship me. No images. Here's the place where you shall worship me. Here's what the furniture should look like. Here's how the priests should dress. Here's the kind of animals you should offer, the kind of sacrifices you should make. Only Israel was given clear and specific instructions about how to rightly worship God. Everybody else was just guessing. 
There's where the promises, the promises of the Messiah, the promises of a new creation, the promise of a day of renewal and healing and restoration. Verse 5, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All their example of faith, all the promises God made to them, all the inheritance that they were given and that were passed down to their sons, all of that belongs to Israel. And finally, he says, from their race, according to the flesh at least, is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior. He was born into the world from the Jews. That's why Paul, or excuse me, why Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. It's for the Gentiles, it's for the Samaritans as well, but it comes from the Jews because from the line of David, and backing up from David all the way to Isaac, and all the way back up to Abraham, from them was born into the world, according to the flesh, the Savior, the Messiah, who he says is God over all. No doubt that Jesus is God In the flesh, Paul says. So the Jews had all of these blessings, all of these promises, all of these privileges, and yet they have squandered them. And that's what compounds Paul's grief. That's why his sorrow for them is unceasing. Now we are not precisely in Paul's position. But we can apply Paul's words in at least three ways. One, we should pray for the salvation of the Jews. We should long for the people whom God chose to bring the Messiah into the world to believe in the Messiah that God sent. Still today, many of the Jews remain in unbelief. And we should pray that they would turn to the Messiah. The second thing we should do is we should pray for the salvation of those who have rejected a rich spiritual heritage. There are many people who grew up going to church, grew up hearing the Bible, having the Bible read to them, taught to them, who were given a rich spiritual heritage in one way or another through their parents or their grandparents or a family that kind of helped raise them or or whatever and they have squandered it they've turned away they're like the prodigal son they have turned their back on all the blessings that god has given them and they have run off and spent their inheritance on riotous living they've gone their own way Many of us have people like that in our own families. We should pray for them with Paul. They ought to believe. They've heard these things. They're not even those who've never had the chance to hear the gospel. They have had their lives saturated by the gospel. Pray for them as well. And then third, pray for your fellow countrymen. Pray for those who have turned from the Lord Paul's praying for his countrymen, and we should pray for ours. There are many in our country who do not know the Lord, who do not trust his word, who have not experienced the 
blessing of being forgiven, who have not learned to extend grace and mercy to others because they have not received the grace and mercy that has been extended to them. Pray for them as well. And know that there is no shame in feeling sorrow and grief over the state of those that you love who are lost. There's no shame in that. But may our sorrow and grief and lament rise up before the Lord who is God over all and who alone can save and heal and restore.